If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14. And we come to our next king in our series on the good, the bad, and the ugly. We're looking at the kings of Israel and Judah. If you remember, after Solomon's reign, Solomon's son Rehoboam um, had two tribes in the south, and that kingdom became known as Judah. And then Jeroboam, who was Solomon's servant, ended up being the first king of the northern kingdom, which became known as Israel. And we've looked at um, these kings over the past few weeks. We're just looking at how long they've reigned, what type of person they were. Some were good. Um, No one was good in the northern kingdom. Eight were good in the southern kingdom. uh, And some of them were quite bad. Um, so we've looked at some kings reigned for, you know, quite a long time. If you look at Asa, one of the good kings in the southern kingdom reigned for 41 years. And then you look at how many kings during his reign, uh, actually were on the throne in the north. And we see that quite a lot, um, with the northern kings. The dynasty in the southern kingdom stayed in David's line, uh, until they were carried into captivity by Babylon. But in the northern kingdom... The dynasty changed quite often, uh, where a king was assassinated, a new family took the throne, they lasted for one or two generations, then they were assassinated and a new king took the throne. Uh, And we come today um, to uh, Jeroboam II. Now then, he was um, related to Jehu. Um, Jehu was responsible for destroying Ahab's line. If you remember, uh, Omri um, had Ahab, that was his son, and then Ahab had Ahaziah, and then his um, brother Jehoram took the throne um, before Jehu was appointed to literally wipe out the line of uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And he was promised that his family would be on the throne for uh, another four generations. And Jeroboam II is the third of the four generations to be on that throne. And Jeroboam is actually the longest reigning king in the northern kingdom. So 2 Kings chapter 14, and we'll start in verse um, 23. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was in gath Hepher. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter, for there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did in his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belongeth to Judah, for Israel, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. Let's pray. Father, thank you again 
for this day, for this time together, for this opportunity to come around you a word. Lord, I pray you'd speak to our hearts today. Lord, I pray you'd help us as we look at yet another bad king. I pray that you'd help us to, to recognize the importance of striving to walk worthy of the vocation with which we've been called. Father, we live in a day and age which we see is just full of corruption all around us. But Lord, we pray that we wouldn't allow that corruption in the world to affect our light, to affect our witness, to affect our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, we just pray that you'd help us through yet another bad king's example, be able to apply this word to our lives, that we might recognize your word, we might recognize your love, we might recognize your patience in our lives as we strive to be all that we can be for the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. So you may have, if you've got titles uh, in your uh, Bible, you may have a title saying the Jeroboam 2, King of Israel. Uh, maybe you might have something like that. That's, that's a title I've got in my Bibles. And we refer to him as Jeroboam the second, but he was not related to Jeroboam the first. Um, with our, you know, normally uh, we have kings and we, you know, we give them, um, you know, Charles now is Charles the third because we've had two Charleses before him. And so, it, it, you know, we have here a, a second Jeroboam um, to sit on the throne. I know people have said to me, why are all the names the same? You know, you've got, a, you've got two Amaziahs, and then you've got two Je Je Jehoahashes, and then you've got two, and we have that quite a lot. Um, uh, and, and we come to the same thing again, Jeroboam. But he's not related to the first Jeroboam. Even though he's not related to the first Jeroboam, he is exactly like him. It says that he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. When the kingdom split, Jeroboam I installed the false worship system in the north, the golden calves, to stop Israel, to stop the people going to Jerusalem, which they were commanded to do three times a year in order to fulfill those pilgrimage feasts. But Jeroboam set up a false religious system so that the people wouldn't head south. They wouldn't go to Jerusalem. And therefore, they wouldn't kind of have an allegiance to the king of the south. So Jeroboam sets up this uh, religious system in the north. And Jeroboam II, even though he's not related to Jeroboam I, is exactly like him. Now, when you read this, you're like, oh, do you know what? This seems like quite a successful reign. Jeroboam reigns for 41 years. He is the longest reigning king in the northern kingdom. In fact, Jehu has the most, from his family, he has the most generations um, who rule in the northern kingdom. In fact, his family has the longest reign of every other dynasty in the northern kingdom because um, Jehu, his son Jehoahash, his son Joash, his son Jeroboam the second, and then his, his, and his son Zechariah, they reigned for over a hundred years in total in Israel. So Jehu has the longest reigning dynasty, um, uh, Jeroboam the second has the longest reign of any of the kings in the north, and they have the most success in uh, his reign. And you would think, wow, 
they're doing really good. You know, they, they're winning back land. They, they've won these victories. They gain back some of the land um, that they've lost. And you would think, wow, what, a, what an incredible reign. But the writer is not interested in how successful the kingdom was. He's interested in how spiritual the kingdom was. And it wasn't spiritual. Success does not mean that it meets with God's approval. The kingdom was successful, but did it meet God's approval? No, it did not. Jeroboam II is the king of corruption. What amazes me is that dude in Jeroboam, you know when we looked at Ahab and Jezebel, and you think, oh my days, these people are so wicked and so corrupt, and yet they had Elijah and Elisha as prophets who um, worked during that time. And Jeroboam II actually has three prophets that prophesied during his reign. One of them is mentioned here, uh, and he actually has a book named after him. We know him far better as the one who ran away from God, got swallowed by a great fish, and then ended up going to Nineveh, preaching a message of judgment. Um, but we have the first prophet, uh, is Jonah. If you look at Hosea, and we're not going to turn there now, but we will look after. If you look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, you look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, you will see that both of those prophets had a ministry during the reign of Jeroboam. So three prophets, Jonah, Amos, and Hosea, prophesied during or ministered during Jeroboam's reign. Uh, Amos is in the middle here because he was actually from the southern kingdom. He was a herdman of Tekoa, which uh, wasn't far from Bethlehem. So he was from the south, but he actually ministered in the north, and Hosea was from the north and actually ministered to the north. So Jeroboam's reign was a long and evil one. Um, he occupied the throne, like I said, longer than any other king in Israel history. And the kingdom experienced more success and a more settled and prosperous period during his time. But it says in verse 24 that he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Here's the thing. God blessed Israel, not because of Jeroboam, but in spite of Jeroboam. It wasn't because of who Jeroboam was that God was able to bless the land. He blessed the land because of who he was. Uh, the king and the nation at this time were corrupt. You say, well, how do you get that from just those few verses? We don't, other than the fact that Jeroboam didn't depart from the sins of his namesake. Um, when we look at the book of Hosea, and when we look at the book of Amos, you see exactly how corrupt the land and the people really are. So during Jeroboam's reign of corruption, we see three prophets trying to minister in the land. Jeroboam was corrupt despite God's word. Through the prophet Jonah, 
they were given the word. He, in verse 25, it says, he restored the coast of Israel from the entrance of Hamath under the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, spake by the hand of his servant, Jonah. So Jonah proclaimed a message that said, look, God is going to give you a victory in battle, and you are going to regain a whole swathe of land that you've not had since the days of David and Solomon. And this corrupt king, despite the fact that God fulfills his promise through the prophet Jonah, does not change his ways. Jonah prophesied that Israel's borders would extend from Hamath, which is about 150 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's, 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 it's further um, past Damascus. Hamath is probably um, midway between Damascus and uh, Aleppo, right in the north. Um, so he, he had, Jonah said, you will have the land all the way up to Hamath and all the way down to the Sea of the Plain. That is the, the Dead Sea. And uh, Hamath marked, uh, marked the northern boundary of the land of Israel. In Numbers 34, it says, This shall be a north border from the great sea. You shall point out uh, for you Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall point out your border unto the entrance of Hamath. And goings forth of the border shall be to Zedad. So that area was promised to Israel um, in the book of Numbers. And as we said, the Sea of the Plain was the Dead Sea, also called the Salt Sea in Joshua uh, chapter 3 and verse 16. And that marked uh, the southern boundary of the land. Um, it, it's possible that what Jeroboam did was simply strengthened the borders of Israel. Uh, it's estimated that at this point, um, he, he had a kingdom which was not seen since the days of David and Solomon. You could say that people never had it so good. I think we um, would be safe to say that we live in a world today where people have never had it so good. Um, in our country, you could say that we've probably you know, got more than we've ever had. We've certainly got more than our parents had. Uh, when where, where they were our age. We've certainly got more than our grandparents had, you know, when they were our age. And, and we've never had it so good. But when you look at the country today, I would say that the country today is far more corrupt than our nation has ever been. Um, you know, what, what boggles my mind is when somebody comes on TV and says, look, this is what you should be doing. This is how you should be living. And then they don't do that themselves. You're like, well, hang on, that's not fair. Why, why are you telling us to live one way and, and, and create these laws, and then you are not willing you know, to do that yourself? It, it always amazes me when a politician comes out and says, you should pay your taxes. And then they get done for tax evasion. You're like, well, what about your taxes? You know, don't tell us what to do, and then not be prepared to do it yourself. You know, in Jeroboam's Day, it was exactly the same thing. The people had never had it so good, but because of the corruption from the leaders, that corruption just trickled down to the people. 
Uh, and we'll look at this in a little bit more detail later on. But if you remember, when we studied Hosea a couple of months ago, we saw that the people were acting the way that they were acting because the priests were acting the way that they were acting. It wasn't Hosea, sorry. I think it was when we looked at um, uh, Malachi. Uh, it was because the priests were acting the way that they were acting. Um, so again, you know, the, 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 the writer of Kings is not focused on how blessed the land was. The writer of the book of Kings is focused on how corrupt the land was. Jonah's prophecy came to pass. Jonah said, look, God has promised that you'll have this victory, that you'll get this land, that you'll, you'll, you'll have all of this. That happens, but there's no national revival. There's nobody turning back to God. There's nobody saying, wow, it wasn't because of these golden calves that we're worshiping in Dan and, and Beth Avon. It's because the Lord God of Israel promised us that we'd have a victory. Therefore, let's honor him. Let's go back to the temple in Jerusalem. Let's worship God. Let's get back uh, to, to the, the, the nation that we were. Let's get back to a people who praises God, who worships God, who prays to God, who thanks God. None of that. They were corrupt, Jeroboam and the nation, despite the word of God. You know, we have God's word today that tells us how to live, that tells us what to do, that tells us how to behave, that tells us how to react. We have the complete word of God in our hands. But yet, sometimes we are still corrupt despite the word of God. You know, how many times have we promised God that we would do something if he answers a prayer a certain way, and then he answers that prayer the exact way that we've asked, and we don't, fill up to, we don't fulfill our end of the bargain. We say, Lord, if you answer this prayer, then I will commit to doing this. Lord, if you answer this prayer, then I will be this. Lord, if you answer this prayer, then, you know, I'll, I'll never miss another service. I'll never miss another Bible reading. I'll never miss another prayer time. I'll never miss another devotional. I'll never, never miss another opportunity to witness. And the prayer is answered, and we forget that we made a commitment to the Lord. Now, here's the thing. God doesn't want you to make a commitment. But if you do, you better fulfill that commitment because it would be better for you not to do that in the first place. The Bible says that the Lord said, I don't want you to vow a vow. But if you do vow a vow, then you better keep your end of the bargain. Jeroboam and the nation was corrupt despite the word of God. How many times has God's word proved to be true in our lives? How many times has God answered a prayer in our lives? How many times has God fulfilled a promise in our lives? How many times has he revealed himself to be faithful to us in our lives? And do we fail to thank him? Do we fail to recognize him? Do we fail to acknowledge him? Do we fail, you know, to give him the, uh, the, the, the proper um, glory that he deserves? Jeroboam was so corrupt that he didn't lead the nation into a, in a national revival. He didn't lead the nation and say, do you know what? God has kept his word. God has been so faithful. We're going to worship him. We're going to turn back to him. You know, these idols are not working. You know, we're going we're to honor him. Jeroboam was corrupt despite God's word. 
But Hosea shows us that Jeroboam was corrupt despite God's love. It says in verse 26, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, that it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left, nor any helper for Israel. Let me ask you this question. How many of you as a parent really enjoyed watching your kids in pain? And if you really go like, oh, I'm glad they hurt themselves, that was brilliant. Any of you ever had a child come home from school breaking their heart because of something you thought, oh, yes. It, it absolutely breaks us, you know, when we see our kids upset. Even now, um, you know, if, if I see the, the girls upset as, you know, as grown adults, it, it really hurts. Because you feel for them. You don't want to see them in pain. You don't want to see them crying. You know, when they were unwell, I really struggled because I didn't want to see them hurt. There was nothing you could do. You couldn't take that pain away. They, they would come home from school because somebody had said something or somebody had hurt them or, you know, somebody had left them out or somebody had done this. And it would just absolutely kill you because I don't want to see them hurt or upset. When you love somebody, whether it's a child, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a parent, whatever it is, when you see them upset, your heart breaks. We get a glimpse of God's love for his people when he looks on their affliction. The word affliction there, it literally means something that is miserable. Uh, something that is uh, troublesome. And God loves his people so much that when he sees his people going through that, it breaks his heart. And do you know what the, the mind-boggling thing is? Is that God made a way for them not to have to go through that. God said to them before they even came into that, and he said, right, listen, if you do this, if you obey my word, I'll promise you, you'll be blessed You'll be successful, the land will receive this, the land will be blessed, you'll have your harvest, you'll have your rains, you'll have your crops, you'll, you know, you'll be obedient to the word, you'll be obedient to the way in which I've laid things out, and you will be blessed. And everybody said, oh, great, we'll do it. In the last 40 days, well, Moses has been a bit of a while up, in, uh, up on that mountain, let's, uh, let's make another God. It didn't even last 40 days. Yeah, we'll do that, Lord, 40 days. And they'd made a golden image. They'd made a calf to worship. God said, look, if you do this, I'll bless you. So sometimes, you know, when we say to our kids, don't, don't do that. But they know better. Because they're so wise. Because, of course, we've never done anything in our lives. We've led... Such a sheltered life. We've never been in trouble ourselves as, you know, when we were youngsters. We've never got into any kind of difficulty because we don't know anything. It's only when our kids get a little bit older, they're like, oh, yeah, now that makes sense. God told his people, don't go down that road. Don't make that mistake. But they knew better. But the incredible thing is, is that God still loved his people. Can you imagine if that was us? If somebody kept breaking our heart time after time after time after time, we'd be like, you know what? I'm good, thanks. 
fed up with having my feelings hurt. Let's, let's just be done with it. But God loved his people. You know, we recognize the fact that we fail the Lord in our lives time and time and time again. But you know, he still loves us. There are people in the world today that want nothing to do with God. That will use his name as an expression of disgust. But God doesn't love them any less than he loves us. The Bible says, for God so loved the whole world. There is not a face that you will look at that God does not love. God loves us no matter what. He loved Israel no matter what. He loved Israel no matter how far they strayed. He loved Israel no matter what idols they served. He loved Israel no matter what nations they turned to for help. He loved Israel no matter how many times they disobeyed his word and they turned from him. And he loves Israel. Hosea compares God's love to Israel like the love that he had for his wife. And we know what Gomer was like. God says to Hosea, go and take the wife, Gomer. She's going to break your heart. She's going to become adulterous. And she's going to do things that will almost destroy you. But that's a picture of what Israel has done to me. Israel is God's bride. And yet they've committed spiritual adultery time after time after time again. And Hosea gives us an insight into the type of corruption that was um, permeating Israel at this time. Hosea Hosea chapter 1 and verse uh, 2 says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. God had espoused Israel unto himself, but they committed spiritual adultery going after other gods. And here's the thing. God knew that they would do that. But God was always faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful to him. And he loved his people. God loved his people uh, and would try and reach out to restore his people back to himself. And Hosea presents God as a God with a loving heart. But Israel was just corrupt. It says in chapter 4 and verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there's no truth. No mercy, no knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. If you knew nothing about the Bible, you didn't know that that was a Bible verse and you just kind of put those two, those two verses together somewhere today and said to somebody, read that. So they'd say if you change the words so it probably didn't sound uh, too much like old English, people would read that and say, wow. There's a problem in the land. There's no truth. What is truth today? Truth is relative. It's subjective. It's what you perceive it to be. Uh, there's no mercy. People seem to get away with anything. You, you seem to have today now the, uh, uh, the victim seems to be the one on trial and uh, the perpetrator is the one that kind of has more rights than the victim. No knowledge of God. 
You'll be amazed at how many kids come to club and you talk about Christmas. What's Christmas about? I don't know. Who's Jesus? Who's God? What is all that about? There is no knowledge of God in the land. You know, when you look at some of the language that's used on TV, you'd never have that language. When we were kids, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember the woman's name. Mary Whitehouse? Remember her? You Blame me, you, you know, you couldn't have anything on the TV. And this woman was like this old battle axe. It was like, but it, everything was clean. Now, everything's filthy. And can I just say this? Filth will just corrupt the minds of those that watch it. You know, you can't have anything on TV now unless there's language. You've got to have a film now. You can't just have a film that all the family can watch. There's every now and again, there's got to be a little word that's slipped in. Just so we can make the rate in a little bit. What, what's all that about? It's killing, stealing, committing adultery. You know, we live in a society where promiscuity is rife. It doesn't matter what you do. If it feels good to you, just go ahead and do it. This could be written for today. That's what the land was like. And do you know what? Just as God loved the people then, even the world in all its wickedness and corruption today, he loves. You know, some people say, well, God, you just don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But God does. And God loves you no matter what you've done. God loves you in spite of what you've done. God still loves you. Hosea marries Goma and is a living example of her unfaithfulness to him in marriage, of Israel's unfaithfulness to God in their marriage, and Hosea demonstrates the greatest act of love that we have seen before the cross of Calvary when he buys his wife back as a slave because of his love for her. That's how much God loves this world. That's how much God loved his people. Hosea warned Israel of God's judgment on them. You know, there has to be a balance between justice and love. In God's perfect justice, sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be paid for. But in God's perfect love, God would pay the debt for that sin. God's perfect justice demands sin must be paid for. God's perfect love says, but they need to be set free. God's perfect justice and perfect love collide at the cross of Calvary. God himself paid the sin debt for the world so that sin would be dealt with, but that the people could be set free. How do we react with God's love for us? Does it change the way we think? Does it change the way we are? Does it, when we recognize oh, the price that God paid for us, when we realize the sacrifice that he made for us. You know, we, I think as parents, sometimes we don't really recognize the sacrifices we make for our kids until we're a lot older in life. And we look back and think, oh yeah, it did, it did cost a lot. That did, you know, it was a lot to, to get them the, the things they wanted, to, to get them to school, to, to put food on the table. To, and we don't think of it at the time because we do because we love them. But when you look back and think, oh yeah, 
I was. Quite an effort on our part. And I think maybe when our kids are older, they should pay us back. Maybe, maybe not. Don't need to nod so fervently, Dad. But when you think of the sacrifice that the Lord has made for us, does that affect how we react to him? Or are we still corrupt in certain areas of our lives? Despite God's love, despite God's word. Jeroboam and Israel were corrupt despite his word, spoken by Jonah, despite his love, demonstrated by Hosea, despite his patience, as spoken of by Amos. It says in verse 27, And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. If he had dealt with them as they deserved, they would have been wiped out. If he had dealt with them as they had deserved, can I say this? They would never have come out of Egypt. Because they were always complaining. They were always turning their back on him. They were always disagreeing with him. They were always trying to do things themselves. But we see the patience, the long-suffering of God. You know, you go back to you know, people say, oh, well, if God exists, how can God do this? And how can God do that? And why would God do this? The oldest man in the Bible to live, Methuselah, proves and demonstrates God's patience for a world in sin. The longest man to live, 969 years, and his name meant when I am gone, it will come. You've got 969 years to put things right. That's God's patience. If God dealt with them as they had deserved, Jeroboam would be gone. The nation of Israel would be gone. But he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, not because of who Jeroboam was, but because of who God was. He'd made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Israel was then and still is now. God's covenant people. That doesn't change. That doesn't mean that Israel is perfect. Israel needs to be saved, just like every other person on this planet. Many of the children of Israel would have attributed their freedom to Jeroboam. We are living in, a, in, in relative calm, peace, prosperity because of Jeroboam's victories. No, because of God's patience. Because of God's long-suffering. Amos reflects on the patience and kindness of God. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Amos, there's a lot of scripture to try and put up on the screen. But Amos chapter 4 and verse 6. And we go to verse 13. This is what Amos says. Amos chapter 4 and verse 6 says, I've given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I've withholden the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest, and I caused it to rain upon the city and caused it not to rain upon another city. Um, and then you go down to verse 8. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. You go down to verse 9. The Lord says, I've done this for you. Yet have you not returned unto me. You go down to verse 10. The Lord says, I've done this for you. 
yet have you not returned unto me? In verse 11, I've done this for you. Yet have you not returned unto me? The Lord is saying, look, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and you still haven't returned to me. How patient of the Lord. Can I say this? I, I am not that person. If my girls didn't do something first time, I'd be like, why are you not doing that? It's driving me nuts. I've told you to do it. I wouldn't be like, oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. You, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. No, I haven't got that patience. I won't give them chance after chance after chance after chance. I like my mother-in-law say it. You, do you think I call her the dragon for, 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 because I don't like it? No, you, you listen to this saying and you realize why she lives up to that name. You know, she used to say to, to Joe and Matthew when they were little, you're me once, feel me twice. I was just Joe. Oh, I was only Matthew. Oh, there we are. She was your angel. A load of rubbish. Um, <laughs> you and me once, feel me twice. Can you imagine what a, what a battle axe? But I haven't got that patience. And the Lord's like, look, I'll do this for you. And you still haven't returned to me. I'll do this for you. And you still haven't returned to me. I'll do this for you. And you still haven't returned to me. And Amos demonstrates the patience of the Lord. And yet despite his patience, Israel was still corrupt. Despite his patience, Israel and Jeroboam were still corrupt. Uh, if you read Amos, and we, and we haven't really got time to go through it all, but if you read the book of Amos, you see the spiritual condition of Israel. They oppressed the poor, which they weren't meant to do. They were meant to look after the poor. There was injustice in the land. There was immorality in the land. The people loved wealth more than kindness. They loved ease more than having a righteous character. How could this nation avoid divine wrath? It's because because God in his patience sent prophet after prophet after prophet. He sends Jonah with the word of God to say, look, this is what God's going to do. He sends Hosea to prove the love of God. He sends Amos to demonstrate the patience of God. And they were still corrupt. All wasn't well in the kingdom. No matter how successful they were. And listen. This is what I want us to realize. Just because we get away with something, just because something is successful, does not mean that it has God's seal of approval. The world might be getting away with things today, and they say, well, they can't be a God because I'm getting away with it. One day they will answer to God. But I don't believe in God. It doesn't matter whether you believe in him. There is not a single person in hell who is an atheist. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who are under the earth, those who are on the earth, everybody will acknowledge that there is a God. Everybody will acknowledge the Lord Jesus Christ. Hosea said, hear the word of the Lord. Because at that time, 
There was no knowledge of God in the land. Can I say this, that we live in a world today where getting to a point where there's no knowledge of God in our land. If you spoke to the average person who talked about the Welsh revival, they'd be like, well, what, the, what does that even mean? People probably look at the amount of churches that surround our small communities and our villages and have no idea why they are even there. You drive through, you drive through Mid Wales. I, I, love, I love driving up to, uh, to, to West Wales or up to Mid Wales because every village you go through, no matter how small, it could just be like five or six houses and there's a church. You know, we went up to the, uh, I was preaching up in Bukhasanai for their harvest service back in October and we went up the Eland Valley and we, we, we did a little walk through the reservoir and there's this church in the middle of nowhere. There's like no houses anywhere. But we were able to go inside and look at the photos on the wall and the church was packed. People probably have no idea why there are all those churches. You go on Gasly Wasted Road, you know, the Muni used to be a Methodist church. The, the museum, the Tabernacle, was the church that actually Capital Romba came out of, and this church is what came out of Capital Romba. There's churches everywhere, but people in Wales have no idea why they're there. And the churches are closing because there's no knowledge of God in the land. Our country is corrupt despite the word of God. Our country and our people are corrupt despite God's love. God still loves the world today. And he gave Christ his son for that world. That we might have a relationship with him and that we might have a promised home in heaven. And how patient the Lord is. Because even 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary, he hasn't come back yet. And that delay is a good thing. Why? Because that patience still gives people chance to come to know Christ as their savior. Let me just say this to you. As believers in Christ, as Christians, maybe we've got away with some things in our lives, but let's not take that as God's stamp of approval. Don't allow corruption to creep in because we have the word of God. Don't allow corruption to creep in because of God's love or because of God's patience. Let's serve him as we should. Let's walk with him as we should. And let's worship him as we should. Father, we thank you again for this day, for this time together and this privilege that we have to come around you a word. Father, we are thankful for your word, for your love and for your patience. Not just towards Israel in the Old Testament, but towards the world today. Father, we pray that you would help us as your children to continue to be the testimony that we need to be to a lost and dying world around us. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. And we want to say today that we love you and we praise you. We just ask if there's anyone here today or watching online that has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that today they would recognize that your word tells them that they are a sinner, that Christ died for their sin and paid for that sin on Calvary. And if they put their faith and trust in him, their sin can be forgiven and their home can be heaven. That's your word. That's your love. And that's your patience for a world in need. Father, would you help us today be the believer we have to be in this world of corruption. And we'll be mindful to give you all the glory for it. We love you and praise you in Christ's name.
Amen. Amen. All right, we'll sing our last hymn together, and then during the singing of this hymn, I'm going to ask Julian if he wouldn't mind making his way to the pulpit, and Julian will close us in a word of prayer, uh, and we'll stand and sing, Oh, soul, are you weed in trouble? And following this, uh, Julian will close us out. Thank you. pray together. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we've been able to spend together this morning, Lord. We thank you that we can sing your praises and gather around your word and share fellowship one with another. We thank you for this time, Lord. We do pray for uh, those who are not with us this morning, those who would uh, love to be here but for some reason uh, cannot make it. We pray for them, Lord. Pray to make up this time uh, to them. We pray, Lord, as we leave this place, as we leave this place, that you'll just bless us, Lord. Bless us each home, each family that's represented here uh, and online, and just bless us, Lord, as we leave and uh, until we gather together later this day. So we pray now that you'll just continue with us in Jesus' name.